You may well be uh, interested in the next one and you may have some questions indeed for our next guest uh, because as families are looking forward to gathering this holiday season, what not to say to parents who might be concerned about their child's speech and language development? Wellington speech and language therapist Christian Wright says relatives and friends might think they're comforting worried parents with their homespun reckons but they're not always helpful. Um, he's here with some of the do's and don'ts. Kia ora, Christian, how Kia are ora, you? how are you? Oh, I'm good, thank you. But this can be a real pressure cooker time of year for parents, um, even when everything is going well and you don't sort of have very much on the horizon. But if you do have issues or if you've got concerns around um, children's speech and language development, um, what sort of things are some of the clangers that you've heard that oh. friends and family come out with? Yeah, I've tried to collate like eight of the most common ones. Mm. Um, I guess the first thing I would say to people when they're gathering at Christmas time, it would just be great if people would just ask and listen. You don't always have to give advice. That's um, not. This is not necessarily just about the parenting segment, no, is it? it's not. <laughs> yeah, totally true. Eh? Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, essentially, parents often will share with me the things that are said to them. The most classic one, and this one actually um, commonly comes from GPs, um, and I'm not suggesting that GPs can't do their job. Of course they can. Mm. But I guess there's a misunderstanding out there when people say he's a boy and boys talk much later. Mm. So there's this idea that there's this separate developmental schedule for boys, mm-hmm. um, which can be considerably later than girls. And um, it's really not that true when it comes to speech and language. I mean, what the research would say around that is that boys can be a few months Um, later to some of the uh, milestones that we would look for in a child's speech and language development. Um, There's a range. Mm. So if we just looked at your first word, roughly 12 months is your first word. So often boys might either arrive slightly after at about 14 months, whereas some of the girls will arrive there at about nine months Mm -hmm. um, or nine or ten months. Mm. And so there's this idea then that we become permissive of boys getting later and later and later with their speech and language journey uh, to the point that often that's one of the reasons I'll see boys present in the clinic Mm -hmm. uh, with no speech or not much at two. Oh, okay. And that's because people have kind of not worried about it when perhaps they should have had some more red flags. Yeah, and just um, knowing some of the basic milestones. So between four and six months, your child should babble. By 12 months, they should have their first word. Mm -hmm. By 18 months, that might have jumped to about 50 words. Mm -hmm. And by two, they're combining words. So combining just two words together, but Mm. like daddy gone, those kinds of things. So we're looking for some of those common milestones. And when your child's not doing it uh, and it's dragging on and you feel like it's getting four to six months behind, as it were, and when parents say, well, how do I know if it's behind? Well, you're immersed in the world of, say, two-year-olds when you have a two-year-old. So when you own a Mm. (laughs) two-year-old, you're an expert in two-year-olds. And when you have a three-year-old, you're no longer an expert in Mm. two-year-olds. You're you're great at three-year-olds. So you have all these little mini two-year-olds around you. You can look across that, and if it's a boy, look across the boys and say, they're all talking a lot more than my child. Mm. Maybe I actually need to think about this. It can be a very difficult time, though, with sort of people potentially comparing their children against other ones and of course you never know whether the yardstick that you're using of the other children that um, you know you've perhaps ended up in a pin group with and that kind of thing whether 
those children are representative of, you know, the greater world out there. Yeah, that's right. Luckily in pin groups, there's usually enough that you can get. The outlier looks like an outlier, um, but generally speaking, if you um, if you go on the internet, generally and type in language milestones, mm. most websites will give you this information, mm. and that's the starting point for most parents. Um, okay, another one that's very common... Um and uh, interested to know because I remember when I had small children, this was a real kind of bone of contention. Dummies, pacifiers, <laughs> can cause speech and language delay. Is that true? Not really, no. Okay. <laughs> There's not really any strong evidence to suggest that mm. um, dummies will impact speech and language development. What we do know is um, it's not about the fact that you're using a dummy. It's about when you're using it and how long that you might be increasing the risk that it's going to have an impact. Mm. But it's certainly not a given that you put a dummy in your child's mouth and there's an instant delay. Mm. Um, it's just not like that. Um, one UK study they just did in 2021 looked at 100 um, developing, typically developing children at between the ages of two and five. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they were looking for, is there a link between the amount of dummy use and any speech difficulties that these children might have. And what they found was there wasn't really any strong relationship between it within mm. that group at all. But they did identify one thing, which was children who had five or more hours of use in the day, mm-hmm. some of those children had some atypical speech patterns, things like you don't normally see in speech, which would suggest that the dummy was obstructing the movement of the tongue in some way, that they were compensating and so they were getting some funny speech patterns um, developing. And what I've I have seen this in a clinic setting, mm. that when you diminish the use of the dummy during the day, it tends to correct itself over time. It's very rare that I re- actually step in and have to try and fix it. Um, now there'll be people out there, clinicians, who might have different experiences. But um, I guess what I'm trying to show families is the first thing is moderate. Mm. So think about how much your child's using the dummy. That same UK study showed that children, and this is to state the obvious, if you're using the dummy just at night, zero impact on speech and language Mm. because you're not talking at night. Mm. Um, However, um, so if you're thinking about this and you're a little bit concerned, firstly, how many hours in the day does your child use the dummy? Mm. Number two, uh, could you start moderating it? And I'm saying moderate, not eliminate, because eliminating it can usually cause a lot of distress. And then families will often say to me, well, how do I go about moderating it, working towards elimination? And the most common two strategies I know of would be creating an association. So the the purpose of the dummy is comforting. Mm. Starting to create an association between that and an object that's not a dummy, like a teddy bear, mm-hmm. sometimes a blankie, anything else you can think of, uh, that you give to the child when you're putting them to bed at night. And then over time, you start to trial weaning them off the dummy, but giving them the other um, object. Yeah. That would be the first thing. And then the second thing would be yeah, um, starting to um, limit time during the day altogether, um, the obvious thing, mm. and working towards just at night time. We had it in our own family, and we were able to do that over time. I mean, I know of one family I worked with recently, and the um, this was interesting, This and this actually bore out true in the research too. Older children, so children around seven or eight years old, who were using a dummy, believe it or not, there are some children who do. Mm. Um, the most effective strategy for much older children was an explanation of what a dummy might do to your teeth. Ah, uh, yes. And those older children just didn't want that. 
and many times would stop using the dummy altogether. Two final things about the dummy. If you're not going to limit it, um, be aware of your child's speech and language development. If it's a bit behind and they're using the dummy a lot, try and reduce it. Mm. And number two, uh, it can have an impact on teeth development over a longer period if you're using it a lot. And it can, in some cases, set up more ear infections because they're shoving the dummy in. The dummy might have germs on it. They're sucking it at the back. Eustachian tube is a tube mm-hmm. connects the ear to the throat. So in children, um, anatomically, it's shorter and flatter than in adults. It's longer and more um, vertical in mm-hmm. its presentation. So bugs creep along that short, flat Eustachian tube and set up an ear infection. Not in all cases, but certainly in... Um, uh, I have clients I work with who have a lot of glue here. Mm. We, we eliminate the dummy and that starts to reduce it. Interesting stuff. Now, we've got a question in on 2101, which kind of links into this next uh, clangor to talk about. Uh, The question is, um, this person has a grandson who's five years old who has aphasia. Aphasia? I think I've said that right. Mm. Uh, And although he communicates very well through body language, he has only maybe five or so words that he can say. Um, So this one is, you know, how to go about helping uh, this grandson who's going to be moving to New Zealand shortly. And this links in with the the next one that you've got on your list here, which is uh, people saying, oh, I knew a child who didn't talk till, you know, till they were four. And they're fine. They're fine now. <laughs> um, how worried should you be if you've got a child who is that sort of age, four or five, and they're, you know, they really have yeah. limited language? Yeah, that's, that's not typical. Mm. So that's to state the obvious. Um, I would be concerned, and I guess I would be interested in, has the child had any speech and language therapy, but also have they had a diagnosis of any kind? So uh, coming to New Zealand, um, if you can uh, sort out, I don't know if they're a New Zealand citizen or not, but accessing a paediatrician would Mm. be a good starting point to get an overview of the child's developmental system. Some children with very, very limited language at that age, reasons might be they have a condition called childhood apraxia of speech. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a difficulty coordinating the musculature of the mouth. So basically, they know what they want to say, but they can't seem to organise their tongue Mm. to help them do it. Mm -hmm. It's just a really simple explanation. So often those children in quite severe cases present with quite limited language at, say, five. Another one would be the child's on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, So children on the autism spectrum, uh, it's it's a spectrum, so you get quite different presentations. Not No two children are the same, but commonly there's difficulties with communication and in some severe cases... Uh, very, very limited spoken mm. communication, maybe just has four or five words that they keep looping on all the time. Um, the idea that there's this child out there that's four and doesn't speak yet and is going to just suddenly miraculously develop language and be fine is quite odd. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's someone out there who swears by it that they've had that child. We've got someone, well, this person says, my son babbled but didn't speak till... Uh, he was almost two. His first word was sausage. He's now 22. He has a double degree in business and international yeah, business right. and never shuts up. Yeah. There you go. And that was that was obviously a child who you would consider a late talker. Mm-hmm. Um, quite different to <clears throat> the child who's, say, four or five and uh, well, let's just say four and is just beginning their language journey. Mm-hmm. That's very atypical. And so when people say that, it's well-intentioned, but they're trying to make you feel okay. But essentially, um, usually my, my experience is they've forgotten some of the details and perhaps the child was actually communicating before for what their meaning was. He wasn't speaking in clear, intelligible sentences until he was four, uh, four or five. What is the situation with um, a child that maybe is growing up with several 
different languages. So yeah. they're maybe, um, you know, going to kindy and English is being spoken or, you know, there's maybe a second language or even a third language at home. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the kind of thing that children can sometimes be put off speaking because they're dealing with different languages at the same time? Yeah, it's a really interesting area. Um, dual language learners, we call them. There's two groups. There's simultaneous, meaning they're learning two languages at the same time, and sequential. They've already learnt one language. Now they're learning a second, so maybe mm. they moved country. Mm-hmm. Um, simultaneous language learners, in, in both groups, what's interesting about it is they tend to come into this other language and they'll usually have a preference for one language um, mm-hmm. often, and that is the one that's most dominant in the environment that they're in. People, there's a common suggestion that learning two languages might cause language delay. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. On the surface of things, it might look like that early on in the preschool years, but actually it's not causing language delay. What's happening is the, the child's language abilities are spread across two systems, so when we look at it, we combine those systems to get a sense of how the child's actually progressing. In actual fact, some studies show children who learn two or more languages measured on IQ later register with higher IQ than children who didn't. I mean, go figure, I can't get into the science of that, but (laughs) it's amazing. Yeah. But um, what my experience is that um, many families think, okay, we'll just teach them this first language, Mm. then we'll teach them the second one. If you're in the privileged position of knowing te reo or another language, my Um, absolute encouragement to you would be to use both languages in your home and be persistent. And the way to go about that is the most proficient user of te reo to use that with the child Mm -hmm. in the home consistently. So the child comes to associate that parent with that language. That's an easy way of doing it. Mm -hmm. And as much as you can, inspire them. Don't require them, but inspire them Mm -hmm. to respond to you in te reo, not just comprehend you. The reason is many people will have the experience of learning two languages or trying to, and they get really good at understanding a language, but Mm. they are reluctant to use it. And they can sit through a movie subtitled in French and understand it all. And point out where the the subtitles have not quite translated it correctly, yes. But then you ask them to speak French and it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. So there appears to be neurologically these sort of two pathways Mm. that we need to be aware of. So we do want, when you're in a um, second language learning environment, to require the child to speak back to you. Otherwise, you'll end up with an adult child who can comprehend some of it, Mm. but just never uses it. Uh, So what about this one? Um, Oh, you know, he's just slow to talk because his siblings do all the talking for him. Uh, Can't get a word in edgeways. It's not true. <laughs> it's really not true. <laughs> I have six children, so my youngest is 14 months. Mm-hmm. He's doing what the research would say, which is quite typical, and that is later-born children are not slower to acquire language. The only bit that's slower is the first 50 words. Hmm. So they're from zero to 50 words is slightly slower than the, than the first-born child. Mm-hmm. Um, and once they get past 50 words... The rest of their language, it just goes ahead like it would, as you would expect. So that was one thing that we saw in the research. Hmm. My situation at home is I have the pleasure of having a 15-month-old being raised by teenagers. So, <laughs> so he's learning lots of interesting words. I bet. 
and ways to relate. But um, but they're actually brilliant. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in the research that was interesting, they call I don't know why they give them these titles. They call them cognitively sensitive adults. What the heck does that mean? Mm. But basically, just being tuned into the child, they saw that if a sibling was tuned into the child, much like a parent might have been with their firstborn, mm-hmm. the outcomes were just the same. So. Don't be concerned that because you have a large family that your child's going to be slower to develop their language. They're not. Mm. They might just be slower to the first 50 words. Some other areas they saw where pronoun development was advanced and conversational, uh, nonverbal conversational skills were very advanced in these children. Hmm. Um, just a final one uh, for now, I think. Um, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. He's not saying very much. He'll catch up. He'll just be fine. Don't yeah. you worry. Should you worry? uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. Really, that's a difficult one for speech therapists too, trying to separate the ones that will catch up and the ones that won't. What we know is 70 to 80% of late talkers do catch up, Mm -hmm. but it's that 20 to 30% we're trying to work out. So with that 20 to 30%, what we're trying to work out is what are some of the risk factors? So things like limited babbling, Mm-hmm. Limited gestural development, so the child who didn't really wave or point and those kinds of things. Mm. Um, a really restricted sound system is a problem. So they've only developed a few sounds and they keep looping on them, but mm-hmm. they're not really expanding it very quickly compared to their peers. So when you're in your two-year-old group, mm-hmm. um, looking at the sounds that they're using and is your child using it. Uh, moving on to they're really late to combine words. So... That group who also tend to have they have those risk factors and, most importantly, they have some issues with comprehension. So you give them instructions at home and you find yourself needing to always be showing. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they've learned a few routine instructions, but it's taking quite a bit of time mm. for them to learn those. So we want to be aware of that group. That's the group that might be at risk of going on with persistent language difficulties. And I guess with all of these as well, there's that underlying possibility that... It might be about the speech, but it could also be about the hearing. Yeah, absolutely. You're Mm. right. And so you always want to be ruling that out. I find most parents have a pretty good sense of the hearing Mm. because they'll say something like lollies in the room next door and the child (laughs) comes running. But but yeah, that that is absolutely to be considered. Absolutely. Oh, well, good stuff. Thank you very much, as ever, for your advice. And thank you also for your questions into us this morning uh, for Christian. That was Christian Wright, speech and language therapist here in Wellington.